Friends and travelers, however you've arrived, I bid you welcome. Here at Let's Be Frank, we're about lives, and above all, living well. I don't suspect a podcast hosted by Benjamin Franklin could be about anything else. In my lifetime, I pursued the practice of moral improvement like a science, recording my successes, and yes, oftentimes reveling in my failings. It's my genuine hope, with our weekly almanac, to feed to a curious world delicious morsels of history in quick and concise installments, perfect for a nice sit in your favorite chair, a morning walk to work. At the end of each installment, I like to wrap it all up in a neat little parcel with a lesson you can apply to your own life, inspired by the events, personalities, and ideas covered in each episode. So sit back, relax, and together, let's make history. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. My beloved Junto, I realized with the cresting of the previous week we had released our 20th episode at Let's Be Frank. That feels simultaneously noteworthy and entirely unremarkable, and the grander intellectual routine we seem to be developing for ourselves. Unremarkable because it was simply another week of bringing you stories and lessons that I find particularly interesting, and hopes that your curious minds do as well. Shipping up to Boston was just another episode among a collection of other episodes. But, at the same time, it feels like so much more. When I set out to begin this auditory odyssey, I had no idea if anyone would listen. I especially didn't know if anyone would, having listened to it, want to listen again. The whole of this endeavor was an experiment, and not only my capabilities, but my belief that, perhaps, the modern world could benefit from whatever little magic or wisdom my mind or eloquence might possess. It was Pliny the Elder who said, Happy are they, in my opinion, to whom it is given either to do something worth writing about or to write something worth reading. Most happy, of course, those who do both. During my lifetime in the 18th century, I can say with confidence I did both, although it was at times uncertain I would do either. In finding myself in your 21st century, things seem even more uncertain. At the beginning of our time, I had no idea what our weekly visits together would become, nor could I imagine we'd make it with relative ease to our 20th episode, and every day we seem to grow and take a shape that does nothing short of surprise and delight me. We've built a devoted community, discovered selfless and revolutionary support in the form of our Patreon, whom we have a new member in the form of Miss Marit Majeski. Please join me in welcoming her. We've started a second podcast, Behind the Benjamin, that unravels how the tangled knot of Let's Be Frank comes together, and every day, our great experiment in social media seems to make people laugh, make people think, and make people happy. And while it may not be something worth writing about, or something worth reading, it most certainly does make me happy. 
And when Let's Be Frank reaches its 100th episode, 200th episode, and beyond, if I should be so lucky, if I still have your friendship along the way, I will count myself all the happier and fortunate for it. Whatever the story they tell about our little junto, my dear friends, you are an integral part of it. After all, all we are, in the end, is stories. Which brings us, dear listener, to today's installment. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is about fables, how they shape our choices, and how real life often transcends into myth. The other day, dear listener, several old friends came to visit me at my home. We spent the evening in laughter, sharing stories of past intrigues about money, about work, about art, about ladies. No more on that topic. Inevitably, one of the gentlemen settled into a story told many times before. You've heard the type of story before, I'm sure. The sort of story, often involving a fish, that, with the passing of time, grows more and more embellished. While certain details, the same, the time, the place, the season, the fish in the story somehow miraculously grows with each pass at recanting the tale, until eventually the minnow of twenty years ago becomes the whale of today. I got attached to this particular idea, and thought it would make fair fodder for today's installment. Dear listener, what makes someone a great storyteller? Is it the eloquence of their writing? The sensationalism of the subject matter? Is it how far their work reaches across the greatest diversity of peoples? Is it how long their work lingers in the imagination of the living? Is it creating something that changes lives beyond the scope of their own? What makes someone a great storyteller? I suspect there are names that, even in your time, are synonymous with great works that inspire challenge and endear themselves to people regardless of time. Names like Shakespeare, Chaucer, Moliere, Homer. Yet I think what truly makes a storyteller prolific is when their stories, their lessons, their art survives long after the details of the teller's life fall into obscurity. Stories that survive beyond the story of the teller itself. For that reason... I've often been quite partial to Aesop and his fables. I would wager any among our number could name his work, even if you didn't realize it was attributed to him. Stories like The Tortoise and the Hare, The Lion and the Mouse, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, fables that remain so universal in their lessons, so relatable in their application, that they can be attributed to almost any place and any time. Remarkable especially when one considers how long ago those stories were written. It's hard to narrow down when exactly Aesop lived. Historians like Plutarch, Herodotus, and even Aristotle wrote that he lived sometime in 600 BC. To put that into perspective, that's 200 years before the era of Greece we like to define as the Golden Age. Aesop was old when the old world gave us lessons to learn. So what's the secret to Aesop's immortality? And why do his fables have such a reach across time? Well, I should say it's because of the lessons one might find within his short, succinct narratives. 
Slow and steady wins the race. Don't cry wolf. But the lovely thing about fables is oftentimes the morals are relative, open to interpret in whatever way that may help the listener. Take, for instance, one of his lesser-known stories, The Astronomer and the Well. Here's how the story goes. An astronomer used to go out at night to observe the stars. One evening, as he wandered, his whole attention fixed on the night sky, he fell accidentally into a deep well. Now, while he lamented and bewailed his sores and bruises and cried loudly for help, a neighbor ran to the well, and learning what had happened, said, Hark ye, old fellow, why, in striving to pry into what is in heaven, do you not manage to see what is on earth? Now I wonder, dear listener, can you find the moral to the story? What is this story telling you? Now I have plenty of thoughts, but you're used to hearing lessons from me. Now I would like to hear from you. If you pass along your thoughts, I'd love to bring them into next week's episode. In the great canon of great storytellers... I'm no Aesop. But in 1770, I put forward several fables of my own that I shall once again lean upon your imaginations to discern the lessons and meaning of. Now, isn't history extraordinary, dear listener? Think of this. When Aesop was being discussed, it was 200 years after the life and times in which he lived. And here we are now in 2023, 200 years later, after these stories were written down doing the same. All good things rhyme, my beloved Junto. Make no mistake about that. Of the fables, right, here we go. Fable 1. A herd of cows had long afforded plenty of milk, butter, and cheese to an avaricious farmer, who grudged them the grass they subsisted on, and at length mowed it to make money off the hay, leaving them to shift for food as they could, and yet still expected to milk them as before. But the cows, offended with his unreasonableness, resolved for the future to suckle one another. Fable 2. An eagle, king of birds, sailing on his wing aloft over a farmer's yard, saw a cat there basking in the sun, mistook it for a rabbit, stooped, seized it, and carried it up into the air, intending to prey on it. The cat, turning, set her claws into the eagle's breast, who, finding his mistake, opened his talons and would have let her drop. But Puss, unwilling to fall so far, held faster, and the eagle, to get rid of the inconvenience, found it necessary to set her down where he took her up. Fable 3. A lion's whelp was put on board a guinea ship, bound to America as a present to a friend in that country. It was tame and harmless as a kitten, and therefore not confined, but suffered to walk about the ship at pleasure. A stately, full-grown English mastiff belonging to the captain, despising the weakness of the young lion, frequently took its food by force, and often turned it out of its lodging box when he had a mind to repose therein himself. The young lion, nevertheless, grew daily in size and strength, and the voyage being long, he became at last a more equal match for the mastiff, who, continuing his insults, received a stunning blow from the lion's paw that fetched his skin over his ears, and deterred him from any future contest with such growing strength, regretting that he had not rather secured its friendship than provoked its enmity. 
Given that this was written in 1770, I suspect you can easily discern the meaning behind each of these stories. Each of these fables were a statement of the rising tensions between Great Britain and her American colonies, published, of all places, in England. But therein lies the utility of fables, dear listener, that remove politics, remove time, remove animosities, and remove custom, and all you have left are human beings doing their best with what they are given. Fables remind us, at the crossroads of choosing right or choosing wrong, other people struggled with the same choices, and there is courage in choosing right. Fourteen years after these fables were published, I'd make the acquaintance of a particular man, through lettered correspondence, who would add his own pen stroke to the world of fables and storytelling, and play a pivotal role in turning the fledgling story of America from history to something more like myth, something more like fables. Mason Weems was an American who, in 1784, found himself with a particular predicament. He wished to become an ordained minister in the Church of England, only there was one small problem. To do so required an oath of allegiance to the King of England and his government. You know, the same government we had just concluded a long and bloody affair escaping from. The gentleman wrote to both myself in France and Mr. Adams, and, a long story short, eventually sorted himself out. But it would not be the clergy that would make Parson Weems notorious, but rather... Instead, one of the first biographies of George Washington, published in 1800. A section of that biography would be the source of one of American history's greatest pieces of folklore and misconceptions about the man who would one day cast aside the crown in favor of the plow. This is that story. When George Washington was about six years old, he was made the wealthy master of a hatchet of which, like most little boys, he was immoderately fond, and was constantly going out chopping everything that came in his way. One day, in the garden, he unluckily tried the edge of his hatchet on the body of a beautiful young English cherry tree, which he barked so terribly that I don't believe the tree ever got the better of it. The next morning, the old gentleman, finding out what had befallen his tree, came into the house, and with much warmth asked for the mischievous author. Nobody could tell him anything about it. Presently, George and his hatchet made their appearance. "'George,' said his father, "'do you know who killed that beautiful cherry tree yonder in the garden?' This was a tough question, and George staggered under it for a moment, but quickly recovered himself." And, looking at his father, with the sweet face of youth brightened with the inexpressible charm of all-conquering truth, he bravely cried out, I can't tell a lie, Pa. You know I can't tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. Run to my arms, you dearest boy, cried his father in transports. Run to my arms. Glad am I, George, that you kidded my tree, for you have paid me for it a thousandfold. Such an act of heroism in my son is worth more than a thousand trees, though blossomed with silver and their fruits of purest gold. Weems' biography, even in his own time, was prone to criticism. One critic even going so far as to say his work was 80 pages of as entertaining and edifying matter as can be found in the annals of fanaticism and absurdity. Washington would not be the only figure to succumb to a general mythicization of their life and deeds. 
Even now, we tell tales of midnight rides of Paul Revere, hollering up on his horse that the redcoats are coming. We tell stories of Dolly Madison escaping a burning White House, a presidential portrait under each arm. We tell stories of Ben Franklin snatching lightning from the sky. As time passes, the truth becomes fiction, until eventually, fiction becomes truth. Like the astronomer, barreling towards the well, his eyes affixed toward the possibility of the heavens, we lose sight of the ground underneath us. So what lesson can we take upon this episode about lessons? We have a powerful need for stories. And not just that. We have a powerful need for stories greater than ourselves. Stories to inspire us. Stories that give us heroes to look up to. Sometimes stories that do the work for us. Bestow upon us the blessing of their achievement or the thrill of their heroism. Now, dear listener, a bit of embellishment is never a bad thing. But today, my friends... Amidst all these lessons, all of these myths, all of these fables, I want you to dare today to live a story that requires no embellishment. Be the hero of a story that requires no liberties, so that when the future tells your story, you can inspire them to do the same. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resource materials and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal section at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Facebook at Let's Be Frank and Instagram at bfranklinlive. And finally, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well, and always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends. <laughs>